0: you're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. For several weeks, we've been tracking through the Old Testament book of Esther. Next week, we complete the journey through this entire book. Today in Esther 9, we're really focusing on two men, two important, powerful men. One's name is Haman. He's from the family line of the Agagites. These are godless people. And Haman has proven himself to be a bad man from a bad family. He has risen in the Persian empire to be in second in command, only second to King Xerxes. And he has previously issued a, a death sentence that all of God's people living in this vast empire, that on a particular day, they will be put to death. It will be legal to kill all of the people of the God of the Bible. That's Haman. The other man is Mordecai. He is one of God's men. He's not perfect, but he believes in the one true God and he is a man who, in a great reversal, has overtaken the position that was previously assigned to Haman. Haman wanted to kill Mordecai, but it is Haman who was killed. So Mordecai now becomes second most powerful person in the Persian Empire. And he has on his finger the signet ring, giving him all authority of King Xerxes. He now has the opportunity. Uh, having inherited the, the position and entire estate of Haman to reverse the death sentence that has been set out for all of God's people. That first decree by Haman is to kill all of God's people. The second decree given by Mordecai is that all God's people can defend themselves on that particular day that their attackers come. Uh, but the first thing that we want to see are three great reversals that happen where it goes from Death under the sentence of Haman to life under the liberation of Mordecai. The first point is this. You can learn from the mistakes made before you. Here's how chapter 9 opens. On the 13th day, the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. They were going to die, now they live. They were going to be attacked, now they get to defend themselves. They were ruled by Haman, now they're ruled by Mordecai. They were going to be destroyed, and now they're going to destroy their enemies. It's a reversal. And let me just say this. Our part is to turn toward God. You're going your way, go God's way. You've been walking away from the Lord, now walk toward him. There's a theological word for this, repentance. So your part, my part is repentance. God's part is reversal. God can and does show up. Now, this is not a promise that everything will be better in your life today, but it is a promise that God will be with you through it all and will work things out to your good. But you've got to walk toward him and with him and trust him. You and I, we lose hope when we look at circumstances instead of looking up to God who can intervene on our behalf. The next verse. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all other nationalities were afraid of them. These were the enemies of God looking to attack the people of God. Their plot, their plan was to kill all the men, women, and children and to plunder them. But now, God's people are given an opportunity under the reversal of Mordecai to defend themselves. Now, this is war. This is like a soldier or police officer returning fire. This is not malicious. This is self-defense. All the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. Some might say, well, I thought our God was a, a God of peace. He is, after he kills his enemies, <laughs> there's peace. That's how it works at the end of the world. The Lord comes back with a sword to put to death his enemies and usher in a forever kingdom of peace. We're told that in the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. This starts to give you a sense of how uh, big this attack was. The sentence given previously by Haman, you can kill all the Jews on this day. Mordecai gives a reverse decree for God's people to defend themselves, so the warning was given. Don't attack God's people, they will respond. But some did not relent. They did not repent. And as a result, their attackers were destroyed. Here in just a particular part of the capital, it was 500 Now, we're talking a nation, an empire of 3 million square miles. That's the Persian Empire. You know the body count is high. Next verse. They also killed. Next verse. Next verse. Next verse. Those 10 sons that you just read for yourself, the 10 sons of Haman, Son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. Yes, God has enemies. But they did not lay their hands on their plunder. Here, there are two men who are making decisions that implicate their families and their communities. Haman and Mordecai. They are, in effect, spiritual leaders. They are leading people. let me say a word to us dads first fathers the decisions we make they implicate our wives our children our grandchildren business leaders the decisions you make implicate everyone that's connected to you political leaders church leaders it's no different And of course, God calls women into leadership positions in society and in the church. He does with Esther. She's a godly woman, not perfect, but she's godly. But today we're focusing, as the Bible does, on these two men, Haman and Mordecai. What happens is they make decisions. And all of those that are connected to them are implicated by those decisions. Haman is governed by the law of the Medes and Persians. What that means is once a decree is given, a a verdict is, is rendered, it cannot be altered. Another way of saying this theologically, we will not repent. We will not change our mind. We will not change our direction. On the other hand, Mordecai is not governed by the law of Medes and Persians. He's governed by the law of repentance and grace. We have seen that he doesn't start off as a particularly godly man, a great leader. When the story begins, he's a bit of a coward. Like many of us, he's abdicated his responsibility. He lets others take over, and he puts his own adoptive daughter in danger. But over the course of the book, we see a man who's growing in repentance, growing in his walk with the Lord. He's changing He is learning to become more courageous, more verbal, more responsible. And the result is the Bible says he is growing in power. And others are motivated by him. They're astonished that God would use such a weak and cowardly man and work in him such great transformation. You want to be a great leader, you want others to follow. You want to make an impact in the world? It starts when we turn back to God. You're a sinner. And so is everyone else. But one of the great things leaders do is repent. And then God is welcome to show up and bring about a reversal. So how many of us are governed by the law of Medes and Persians. You say, I don't repent. When I'm wrong, I don't say it. I don't tell anybody I'm sorry. When I've chosen the wrong course, I continue in it no matter how disobedient and disastrous. How many of you in your business, in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your faith, you say, you know what? We may have picked the wrong choice, the wrong course, but it's too late now. It's like you run a stop sign. You can't hit the brakes and go back. You you just got to go forward. That's not true. There's always an opportunity to repent and to trust God to make a reversal. It's never too late. And here's what's worse. We know from the story before today that Haman did not repent. And he dies publicly, shamefully. And his sons proceed with the plan that their father had in place. They didn't learn from the mistakes set before them. You've heard the old adage, like father, like son. Well, these boys are just like their dad. All ten of them. Did you know for the first time in our nation's history, the majority of children born to women under the age of 30 are born without a father in the picture? Today, if you have a father, even if he hates God and isn't good to you, you're in a minority. Let alone a father who is repentant, a father who knows the heavenly father. A father who will read scripture with you and pray with you and encourage you to be walking with the Lord. Reversal number one, learn from what's gone on before you. Reversal number two, you don't have to have all your questions answered in order to walk with the Lord. I'll I'll put out a warning before I read this next section. It's kind of like the Persian Hunger Games. I mean, it gets pretty dark. Here are the next verses. The number of those killed in the citadel, citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, "The Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted." If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's 10 sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the 10 sons of Haman the Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar and they put to death in Susa 300 men and they did not, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. You may remember in chapter three, Haman made an edict. On this particular day, you can kill all of God's people, men, women, and children and plunder all of their goods. In chapter eight, Mordecai replaces Haman. He gets his entire state State he becomes the vice president, and he issues a decree that reverses this so that God's people on that particular day can defend themselves now. They did. And then steps forward Queen Esther. And all of a sudden, she has two requests. Number one, we killed a lot of people today. We'd like an additional day to kill more people. And number two, Haman's sons are dead, but I'd like to crucify them publicly to make a statement. Now, other translations have differently worded requests from Esther. They render it this way. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows, Well, that makes it sound like the Wild West where, you know, the accused stands on a wooden platform with a trap door and a rope around their neck. That's not the way it worked in Persia. The Persians invented crucifixion. It was then mastered by the Romans who, of course, crucified Jesus. So impaled is, well, think of a skewer, and I'll not take it any further than that. So is this a good thing or a bad thing, this request of Queen Esther? Is it a holy thing or an unholy thing? Commentators, no shock, are a little divided on this point. So let me give you two perspectives, and then you can go to lunch and fight it out. Perspective number one, what she did was a good thing, the right thing. Going all the way back to the Old Testament, the Agagites were always the enemies of God's people. In the book of Exodus, when God's people were being liberated from Egypt, it was the Amalekites, but it's the same group. Their king was Agag, so they become the Agagites. It was that group, as God's people were being liberated from Egypt, they were the first to attack them. So fast forward about a thousand years, Haman is an Agagite. So the war between Mordecai and Haman is ultimately a thousand-year-old war where God's enemies are trying to destroy God's people. This, This finds its culmination in 1 Samuel 15. The first king of Israel is Saul. And God tells Saul two things. Number one, kill all of the Agagites. They exist to destroy your people. You can't both live. If you don't kill them, they will kill you. And number two, God says to Saul, don't plunder their goods. When you defeat them, don't take their possessions. Don't make it about the money. What does King Saul do? He lets some of them live and he takes their money. Saul sinned against the Lord. So one way to look at this is that Haman should never have been born. The Agagites shouldn't even exist. And and those who would say what Esther did was a godly thing is because, well, she was finally doing what was decreed to King Saul centuries earlier. Perspective number two. The other view is that this is a bad thing. To defend yourself on one day, that's justice, but to add an additional day to hunt down your enemies, that doesn't seem like justice anymore. She went too far. She took the decree from Mordecai, which was just, and she added extra time to it. That seems unjust. Furthermore, they would say, well, taking the dead bodies Of the ten sons of your enemy and impaling them publicly—that's going too far. What do you think? Now it's hard to know exactly because the text doesn't say. One of the difficulties in interpreting the Book of Esther is that there is no commentary in it. It doesn't say, "And the angels were rejoicing," or "And God wept." It doesn't say. He doesn't even say he wept, if that's the better way to say it, instead of weeped. <laughs> okay, so we know that Scripture interprets Scripture. The, the Reformers taught us that. So where else might this story appear in, in the Bible, and how does it interpret it? Or where is something similar to this? So what does the rest of the Bible say? Nothing. Esther is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. So you think about it, study it, see what you come up with. Here's what we can say and apply to our lives. How many of you have made decisions, and looking back, you think, I don't know that that was the right decision? I think my motives were mixed. I I don't know. Some days I think I honored the Lord, and some days I think that wasn't very God-honoring. So here's the good news. God works all things for the good of those who love him. You may not have gotten it right, but God made it right because God is a God of grace. So when we are repentant, God works a reversal that leads to our rejoicing. But here's the truth. You don't need to have all your questions answered to walk with God. You don't need to have all your Bible questions, all your life questions answered in order to walk with God. This side of eternity, we may not get a clear answer on Esther, but we have hope that God does a perfect work through imperfect people. Finally, reversal number three, you don't have to have a greedy life. You don't have to live that way. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces, who assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies, they killed 75,000 of them but did not lay hands on their plunder. Again, chapter 3, when the enemies of God attack the Jews, they can plunder them. That was the decree that was made. But in chapter 8, Mordecai gives the reversal. When they attack you, you have the legal right to plunder them. But here in chapter 9, in multiple times, God's people, we're told, do not plunder their enemies. Next verse. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. This is the beginning of the Feast of Purim. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as the day of feasting, of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Here's what had happened. The decree given all the way back in King Saul's day, 1 Samuel 15, again, don't plunder your enemies. And what does King Saul, the Israelites do? They plundered their enemies. They were a greedy people, generation after generation, God's people taking what God forbid. It might be fruit on a tree, think Adam and Eve. It might be land that didn't belong to them. They took something that was not theirs. They disobeyed. What does Jesus say on the subject? For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You know what that means? That every single day we worship. We either worship our wealth or we worship God with our wealth. It means every dollar we spend, every transaction we participate in, every bill we take out, every expense that we incur, it's an act of worship and it's an indication of the heart. Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart is. And when someone says, we shouldn't be talking about money in the church, what they're really saying is, I don't want you to talk about my idol. Is God against money? Absolutely not. Is God against people having possessions and wealth? No. It's just that we must remember, it's all the Lord's. We are just stewards of it. I pray that this would be a day for you, that you would circle this day on the calendar. It was this year and this month and this day that I repented, maybe of a whole family line of legacy of bad stewardship, greed, and that I finally let Wealth go by that wasn't mine and I took wealth that had been entrusted to me and I used it as the Lord intended and I did it as an act of worship. And if someone thinks, oh, okay, you're just wanting the money in my wallet. No, what God wants is the idol in your heart. And what we see in this passage, then people rejoiced. They didn't take the plunder and they rejoiced. They rejoiced. Now, I understand throwing a party because you get rich, but how many of you would throw a party when you didn't get rich? You're like, I didn't win the lottery. Hey, come on over. We're going to celebrate. Like, what? (laughs) Why? Because God is my treasure, and God is enough. And if he saved me and my family, that's the greatest gift of all, and I can't get any richer than I already am. A lot of this today has been about reversal between Haman and Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai was powerless, Haman was powerful, but in a reversal, Haman became powerful. I mean, uh, Mordecai became powerful and Haman became powerless. Haman wanted to kill Mordecai and be paraded like a king. In a great reversal, Haman got killed, but not before he had to parade Mordecai around like a king. God's people were sentenced to death, but in a reversal, they put their enemies to death. God's people went from mourning and fasting in a great reversal to rejoicing and feasting. Let me take this to the next level. Mankind wanted to become like God, but in a reversal, God becomes a man. The son of God lived in riches and glory, but in a reversal, he came in poverty and humility. We were destined to die for our sins, but in a reversal, our God died in our place for our sin. Our sin brought us death, but in a reversal, Jesus' death brought us life. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.